From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. An all-volunteer panel is working to hold the Boulder Police Department accountable. But will it lead to real change? It's important for us as community members to give not the perspective we think the police want to hear, but our real and genuine perspective as community members to see the things that maybe the police don't see. What they found and what's next. Then the Broncos kick off the regular season tonight with great expectations from new owners to a new quarterback who'll be facing his former team. I'm excited to just get out there and play again. I, you know, I love this game. I'm passionate about it and uh, got a lot of great teammates. There's a lot of guys I'm super close with on the other side, so it'll be a great battle. You're about to step out the door. You've got your keys, your wallet, and CPR. If you have your phone with you, we're just a tap away. Listen live at CPR.org or use the Colorado Public Radio app on your phone. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. In 2020, following a summer of protests over the police killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, the city of Boulder looked inwards. The city council passed an ordinance to establish a police oversight panel led by volunteers from the community. Two years later, that panel has released its first ever report. But many questions linger now about what comes next. The panel's two co-chairs, Ariel Amaru and Daniel Leonard, join us now. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. Before we get some background and talk specifics about how the panel works in its inaugural report, what's been the biggest revelation to you over the past two years? Ariel, um, I would start with saying that the legwork of getting a volunteer panel off of the ground and the systematic foundational work that has to go in is a heavy load, um, but a worthwhile one. And Daniel, what about you? Yeah, I, I would 100% agree with Ariel. I think for us, especially in setting, I think we all came to this work with a strong vision. Of, of what we wanted to do. And I think the experience of how much work goes into just a little bit of change has been eye-opening. Um, but as Ariel said, I think in the end of the day, when, we, <laughs> when we've gotten to the end of like a long work day, um, it really is the work that needs to be done. Ariel, you're a Boulder native with a background in corporate law and public policy. Why did you choose to volunteer for this panel? Yeah. Uh, Boulder is a place I, I love dearly, and I also am of the opinion that places you love dearly are the ones that are most deserving of interrogation and uh, thoughtful critique. So to sit with some of the ugliness and, and the hard parts. So for me, the, the Zaid Atkinson incident was indicative of Boulder's um, kind of ugly underbelly. And as a woman of color with a JD who wrote my undergraduate thesis on risks of Black women reporting domestic violence to authorities, I realized I really wanted direct involvement with my community and the community I knew best. And Ariel, just to be clear, can you refresh our memory of who Zaid Atkinson is? Sure. Uh, Zaid Atkinson was a Naropa student who 
was cleaning up trash outside of his apartment when he was stopped by police officers and likely asked for his ID and pressed him several times to, to, to a point that, you know, basically just did not believe that a black man could live in the apartments he was at and did not believe when he told them who he was and his identifiers as a student, what his address was, what he was doing, and eventually an entirely huge police presence came. That incident eventually ended up being settled with the city. Uh, so the details of what went on privately are hard to say, but the body cam <laughs> footage speaks for itself. So Daniel, you work in marketing for CU Boulder. What led you to the panel? Yeah, for me, you know, I specifically work in arts marketing for CU and in the Boulder community. And, and for me, I think it's a baseline. I really believe that civic engagement is important for all of us, no matter, you know, what industry we work in, where we work elsewhere in the community. I think supporting democracy, supporting our community comes down to really showing up in the governing process. Uh, and, you know, if we're going to be a government of the people, the people have to show up for work. And so for me, like a lot of people in Boulder, I think the incident with Zaid was was really an inciting moment to get involved, to do more, to to uh, work harder for this community. And in particular, I was friends on Facebook with someone who was part of the original, you know, the implementation team. And so mm -hmm. I was starting to see more of this work coming out on the ordinance, the opportunity of the panel. And so as soon as that application went live, for me, that was just, it, it was my opportunity to get involved and to do more. Ariel, you mentioned earlier kind of having to dig deep and I guess here's some not so favorable things about a place that you live in, but also love. Was that difficult? It has been difficult, but I would say it's an important difficulty. So reviewing body camera footage, going through trainings that police officers have to go through, I think is a lot as a civilian and can be stressful to take on. And at the same time, I would say the panelists are really aware of the position of privilege we are in, that we get access to this, and that we are then having a direct line to the police chief to share opinions. Daniel, what about you? Was it difficult for you to take a critical look at where you live? Yeah, and I think part of that, you know, back to your original question, is, is that the whole panel is, really thinks it's important to make sure the average person is also getting insight into these complaints to kind of lift the veil on the work we're doing, in our, you know, you see in our annual report, you see at our public meetings, uh, uh, giving um, transparent views of, of these complaints we're getting and what those outcomes are. And yeah, for me personally, it's hard to watch and it's hard to experience. And, and it's important for us as community members to give not the perspective we think the police wanna hear, but our real and genuine perspective as community members to see the things that maybe the police don't see, to see the things that truly impact us, where the community and the police department maybe aren't in alignment on, on policy, but even the cultural view of, of um, you know, what's happening in the same video that we're all viewing. And so that's just to echo what Ariel said, that it is difficult work, but it's just, it's important and it's what we're here for. Yeah, lift the veil. I think that's a very prolific way of putting that. So you talked about the training and we're going to talk about that uh, shortly, but some quick background first. The Boulder Police Oversight Panel was established again in 2020, and it reviews complaint investigation files and makes disciplinary policy and training recommendations to the Boulder Police Department. 
To identify new members, the panel formed a selection committee composed of current members as well as representatives from two local nonprofit organizations. Members of the nine-person panel had to undergo training, including courses police officers in Boulder have to take. Daniel, can you tell me a little bit about what those trainings entailed? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, one of the most important trainings for us was in use of force. And one of the biggest things was getting an understanding of how the department defines use of force and its levels of appropriate use of force to respond to certain situations. And so I think for a lot of us, you know, just the words use of force exhibits um, a lot, especially now, especially since we're seeing so much body cam footage put, you know, on display on social media in um, traditional media outlets. And so for us to go through that process and really spend the time understanding how the police department defines those terms, defines those situations so that we're really able to use the same common understanding then when we come together to talk about when use of force is appropriate, you know, from the community perspective versus the police perspective. Uh, And so that was one of those, well, one, multiple foundational trainings for us. And then one of the other more important trainings, I was thinking, was just when we we went into the Boulder Police Department and watched some kind of training procedures of how use of force uh, um, is practiced by the police department. And that was, I think, really impactful for a lot of us mm-hmm. to listen to the police um, officers tell us why they were doing certain things and then to watch them go through the process of practicing what it's like to confront someone you know, with a knife, what it's like to confront someone who is in, in the middle of a crisis mm-hmm. um, and to get that you know, uh, to get that perspective from the police department, but then also to better inform how we can communicate with the department about our impressions. Following the review, the panel made policy and training recommendations. Daniel, tell us about those. Yeah, so we've made a few and some of our highlight recommendations. Uh, One of the things we've been looking in in particular is police interactions with minors and with persons with disabilities. Mm -hmm. We're looking a little bit closer at those policies. Maybe one of the more important looks, though, that we've had in one of our very early cases, we had a disagreement with the department about a use of force with a juvenile. And what that led to was a reexamination. And what is happening now is a change in policy around neck, neck restraints and what is allowed and what is not allowed in the Boulder Police Department. And so that's a policy we're still waiting to see what the final result is. The police chief has been in touch with us that they're looking at really a a more careful biological definition to help guide officers. But that's probably one of the bigger policy recommendations we've made, in addition to a few training recommendations that I think, you know, a lot of listeners will probably find familiar of, of trying to connect the department and our community generally with different options for first response. Um, And so in cases where the police department is dealing with a juvenile or is dealing with someone who is going through a mental health crisis, if there's someone else in the community who's a better person to be a responder to that situation, to diffuse that situation, to connect that person with the resources they need, because in some cases, you know, the police may not be the right answer. Uh, they're the first call on the other side of 911 when a concerned member of the community calls. But, you know, especially for police reform, there's this really important conversation about how we serve, serve our community better because 
we sit in these case reviews and I feel like, Ariel, I don't know about you, but I feel like a lot of the time we kind of sit back in our chairs and we look at a situation and the big picture question is, is like, how did we get here in the first place? Why are the police responding to this situation at all? How could we have intervened sooner as a community to provide the services that could have avoided a situation altogether? And so that's been a lot of our conversation as well. Yeah, I, I would agree with everything Daniel said 100%. And, and would just add that, at least for me, a lot of the process of reviewing cases has been slowing down kind of the rote policing that's going on that we are seeing, right? Mm -hmm. So they are going through their jobs and what they do every day and us sitting down with a lot more time and a lot of the policies on hand and saying, hey, it looks like a step was missed here or we would have liked to see this kind of communication happen with someone at this time and being able to then recommend where we need clarifications just as civilians, I think helps not only with policing in its actuality, but also with its optics, which is just as important in some ways too, that it's everything is above board and that everything that can be made as clear and distinct as possible is being highlighted. And so that's a lot of what I find in our case reviews is us just saying, you need to show your math essentially. Ariel, is there anything you observed while you were doing the training that stuck out as something you think should be changed? In terms of the training, I actually would allude more to what our independent monitor did with the uh, history of police oversight training mm -hmm. um, and how police oversight has functioned historically. I think it helped me a lot in terms of taking away some preconceived notions of what it was, um, of how policing functions differently in different countries and different parts of our country, of how city councils are organized, of how police unions are organized. And to anyone who's interested in this area, I would recommend just doing kind of a deep dive in a Google because you'll see a lot of the constraints um, and then also the room for opportunity. So for me, that just stuck out because all of a sudden I had these boundaries in mind of what this panel is legally allowed to do. Daniel, some of the policy and training recommendations included the Boulder Police Department re-examining training of use of force on juveniles, considered providing more clarity in its rules and regulations around what specifically constitutes a prohibited neck or chokehold restraint, the panel also recommended that the Boulder Police Department remind officers and detectives to ensure all individuals alleging sexual assault be provided with contact information for the department's victims' advocate services. And another recommendation was that the Boulder Police Department should provide a training reminder to officers on the importance of confirming the service of a protection order before applying for an arrest warrant or for a violation of a protection order. How did the police department respond to these recommendations? Daniel? Going through that list uh, again and through my head is, is generally speaking, I think the department has has been, and specifically um, our, our police chief, have been really responsive to the re recommendations that have come from the panel. There have been disagreement on discipline for the officers that were the subject of the complaint. There have been a couple of those, but generally speaking, I think we've had good and productive conversations in moving the ball forward. And that's that's also to say is that we're feeling out, you know, as 
Ariel had said, we're learning more about our our legal authority where, where we can and can't act, but we're also feeling out our political and interpersonal authority. And as we build relationships with the community, learning when and where we can apply pressure to affect change and when and where you know, that pressure might inhibit change, where it might break a relationship or um, where it might meet the kind of significant uh, resistance that would threaten the panel. And so we're, we're really finding our place in this process where we affect change with the authority and the voice of the community that we have and expand on that, find new ways to, to press issues and affect change. But generally speaking, yes, I think the department has responded positively to our recommendations. And in particular, I think what's most affecting for me is hearing from the police department, their needs of, of more, more social services around the state of Colorado and in um, the Boulder community, specifically supporting mental health uh, addiction services Mm -hmm. um, services for people who are experiencing homelessness. Um, and in those areas, there's there's agreement, and yet we're not in a position to affect those changes. And so we're doing our best to address policy and address complaints when um, when those issues come to a head for the police department. We're a new panel, right? And so this is really the first batch of policy and training recommendations you're going to see. And so in some ways, it's hard to answer that question because I do agree with Daniel that the Boulder Police have responded favorably to most of our recommendations, but to see if that really has peace and if that's really taken place, I think we'll be looking in the next few years of the panel's annual reports and are we seeing different kind of cases come up or are we seeing the same patterns come in terms of what the actual effect of the panel's um, policy recommendations is, how much they're being incorporated into the police department. So it's, it's something to keep your eyes on. So you both agree that the police department responded favorably to the recommendations, but does it remain to be seen that they will actually adopt those changes? Yeah, Correct. are we disrupting a trend? Um, what are the trends that we need to disrupt? That's going to take us time to uncover and and time for this panel to get its feet. And one of the things we've talked about as a panel altogether is continuing to follow up on these recommendations, continuing to make sure that these these recommendations are taken to a positive endpoint for our community. What about the community? How has the community responded to the panel and the suggestions from the panel? I would say our community engagement efforts are really just now um, coming to the forefront. And so a lot of goals for this upcoming year are strengthening our online presence, having community meetings, panel forums, um, kind of publicizing the, the quarterly meetings we have with the chief more. Right now, it seems like there is interest from the community in what we're doing, uh, and we welcome that, and we'd love to see more engagement. As I would also just highlight, we'd particularly love to see engagement from students. There's two panel spots that are always reserved for students, mm -hmm. and so um, I think engaging with the student community will be really big for us in this next year. So the panel, as you point out, is still relatively new, and these first two years have been described as foundational steps. What's next for the panel? Yeah, I think, um, you know, the biggest thing, so yeah, some of those foundational steps last year in particular was getting our bylaws written and mm -hmm. really setting down our administrative procedures, which sounds like boring work, but is the kind of work that, that supports the panel for the next five years, the next 10 years, and supports everything the panel does. And so now having gotten most of that work done, 
we are most excited for this upcoming uh, recruitment cycle. And so there's an opportunity. Uh, we will be bringing on five new panel members. We just got Boulder City Council to approve expanding the number of members on this panel, a really positive development, just, just responding to the discoveries of what this workload is. And we'll also be bringing on uh, four alternates. And so it's a total of nine people that we're looking for to join this effort. And I think in a lot of ways, we're really getting to the conversations now you know, where there's a lot of good ideation in our, especially you see in our public meetings about where we want to go. And so our legacy committee in particular has started um, collecting data um, around use of force and interactions with juveniles to and, and persons with disabilities to dig deeper into the, um, the history of, of those interactions. We're also really excited, as Ari was saying, of, of expanding our community engagement um, to, to reach more corners of the community, to bring more people into this process, to, um, to make sure we're being held accountable as a panel, to make sure we're doing this work as the community needs it to be done. Um, and then, you know, I think really as each of us looks forward to each new case review that we get the opportunity to serve on because each one is building, yes, the foundation for the future, but it's also an immediate and acute opportunity to have substantive change in our community. I think I would just add that the core of our work is reviewing uh, these complaint investigation files and making disciplinary policy and training recommendations. And I hope that the work that the panel has done sets up the future iterations for that really being their main focus. Ariel, you're soon leaving the post of the panel's co-chair. What are you excited to see the panel do as an outsider in the next few years? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, I, I think it would be the community engagement, right? I think it would be having a foothold within the community as a respected group of volunteers who have the ear of uh, city officials um, that are accessible to the community at large. And so I would really love for more people to know about the panel and the work they're doing and to also know that these are an amazing group of people with full-time jobs who are volunteering an extraordinary amount of time to give back to their community. And I would just love for them to get some recognition with that too, as well. And people to know that they're accessible too. If you want, this is a panel of a lot of people who are willing to just chat on the phone or answer questions. And that's special. And I think in some ways kind of rare. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Ariel Amaru and Daniel Leonard are co-chairs of the Oversight Panel established in 2020 to help investigate complaints and review procedures within the Boulder Police Department. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. About a million Coloradans have dealt with chronic pain. It can lead to addiction, death, and even thoughts of suicide. But some Coloradans have found new solutions. I feel much more like myself again. I'm much more like the person my wife fell in love with. Conversations with people fighting for relief from chronic pain in the latest episode of Colorado In-Depth. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts and in the Colorado Public Radio app. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. For the first time in years, the Denver Broncos began a season full of, well, Great expectations. Tonight's season opener in Seattle features some big firsts 
new and historic ownership of the team, and the anxiously anticipated debut of star quarterback Russell Wilson. And the buzz is that these big changes just may be what the team needs to end a six-year playoff drought. Joining us now to discuss tonight's game and everything else Broncos is Ryan Harris. He's a former player and local and national broadcaster. Ryan, welcome to the program. Thanks, Chandra. Great to be here. I have to start by saying that I own one Bronco shirt, which I know is pitiful for someone who's lived in Colorado for just over a decade. But I am even wearing my shirt today. And I have to say the excitement is just palpable here. It's electric and off the charts. Now, we've had you on. (laughs) What what did you say? (laughs) Even my kids had uh, Broncos Day today at school, so everybody was wearing their orange and blue. It was wonderful to see. (laughs) Well, of course, I think everyone's going to be wearing the the Broncos gear all day today. Now, we've had you on the show before, and you've expressed excitement about the season. And in some cases, that was a little bit displaced. Does this feel (laughs) substantially different? Like, why? If so. Well, winning a Super Bowl, I can tell you, when you have a dynamic quarterback, somebody who raises the boats of everybody else, uh, you can win a lot of football games. One example of that with Russell Wilson is he held walkthroughs before practice each and Mm. every day uh, during training camp. Yes, you didn't get to see him in the preseason, but I got to see him uh, against the Dallas Cowboys. He was very sharp in the red zone and very much in command of the offense. And when you have a quarterback that great, he makes other players reach a new potential. Wide receiver Jerry Judy had zero touchdown for the first time in his career as a football player. That's not going to happen again. And when you have an elite quarterback who can throw people open, throw it past the linebacker when they're not looking, lead a wide receiver to the field on a reception so they can keep running, that's when you unlock unlimited potential to win games in the NFL. Mm, Exciting. Well, as you've said, Mr. Wilson is definitely considered an elite player, and he has come to Denver with great fanfare. It seems that his family has been super busy, and he has lots of interest outside of football. Like, he's, uh, since arriving in March, he's partnered with Children's Hospital, opened a fashion store in Park Meadows with his wife, pop star Sierra of my former city, Atlanta. Uh, They've even recently been spotted at the U.S. Open tennis tournament. And uh, this is kind of similar to what we would see with Peyton Manning, just a packed schedule. So my question is, how do you keep a schedule like that yet perform like an all-pro quarterback on the field? Well, that's because most people don't know that uh, you get your work done between 6 and 8 a.m. typically in an offseason when you're a football player. I, I I would wager there's not a single morning where Russell's not awake by 6 a.m. So all of a sudden, a 5 p.m. dinner or a 5 p.m. Uh, you know, a travel out to see the U.S. Open, you can come back and still wake up. So a lot of football, the elite football players' work gets done early in the morning, hmm. sometimes 5.30, but mostly 6 o'clock. And I'm talking about in the building, lifting weights, going over a game plan so that when the rest of the team comes, you are a leader in front of those players who are going to be literally looking at you in a huddle, panting, out of breath, saying what's going to happen with their eyes. You can tell them what to do. So when you when you do that kind of work early, go have some fun. And let's remember, I mean, football players are human beings. Every single athlete I know wanted to be at the New York at the U.S. Open for uh, Serena's Absolutely. final match. I mean, that's a fantastic <laughs> item. 
going to Miami for F1. Who wouldn't if you could? And a lot of us would do a lot more and be more efficient if we had our own airplane like Russell Wilson has. (laughs) Absolutely. So it's sort of like that old commercial. We do more before 9 a.m. than most people do all day, right? (laughs) Oftentimes, especially in the season in the NFL, absolutely. Now, this will also be the Broncos' first game under its new ownership group led by Walmart heir Rob Walton. And that also includes former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice and Starbucks Chair Melody Hobson, which we should note are both African-American women. And that, of course, is noteworthy because the NFL has come under fire for a lack of diversity in its ownership ranks. Now, we've asked you this before. What difference does ownership make on the field? Is it as simple as having the financial wherewithal to sign a Wilson, especially to a five-year, $245 million extension, which, of course, happened earlier this month? Or is there more to it? Far more to it. If you have an owner, you have accountability. And it's not just on the field. It's traveling together, setting a schedule. But one thing I loved, I had the fortunate opportunity to talk with Mr. Penner, at an event, and, and he's just blown away by the response of the city welcoming them. And in talking to him further, they wanted to have Melody Hobson and, and others in, included in the ownership group so that they could make sure that they're covering every aspect they can to win. I mean, George Penner said to me, he said, that's how we know that's how you win, bringing in different ideas, different perspectives. And he's got the, quite the track record to show it. So it's one thing if the NFL wants a, a diverse ownership group. It's something totally different when the lead owner says, I want important, credible, fantastic people to be a part of my team. And, and we can have that opportunity. That's, everybody feels that difference. And you can even see, too, when walking around, just seeing some of the support staff, the operations staff that's around players every day. Uh, the, the colors and sizes and shapes are different already. And that's where we are all going. So it's fun to be around the Broncos facility with that new ownership and see how many ways that the new ownership group is affecting not only the players, but the building in our city. Now, the NFL loves to create that drama. So besides it being Wilson's debut as a Bronco, which is huge in itself, he's also facing his former team, the Seattle Seahawks. And as you know, he played with them for 10 years. In a news conference last week, Wilson was asked about the emotions he's experiencing over that. 10 years, I, I couldn't imagine those, you know, those years not being in my life and how special they were and how many games we won and how many amazing thrillers and just uh, you know, Super Bowl we won and everything else. So uh, I'm going to think about all those memories and everything else and the joy of that and the gratitude of that. And then also, um, we got a football game to play. So I'm excited to just get out there and play again. I, you know, I love this game. Um, you know, I'm passionate about it and uh, got some, a lot of great teammates. There's a lot of guys that I'm super close with on the other side. So it'll be a great battle. Pretty exciting, right? Well, I love it because at the end of the day, anger is not a productive emotion. It literally shuts down parts of your brain. And I feel that people want him to say, I can't wait to score 15 touchdowns against my former team. <laughs> no, he chose to come here. And when you take joy and gratitude for past situations, even if there were transgressions, you have moved on. And that's the most important thing. You know, there are going to be a lot of teammates of Russell Wilson's tonight that get to Seattle and they're going to watch. Does does he miss Seattle more than he loves Denver? But none of that matters. What matters is that, hey, if you talk to me about my past, I'm grateful for it. I, I had a lot of fun. I'm here to have fun with you guys right now. Let's go start by winning this football game. And 
And Russell Wilson has that ability to mentally understand what his team needs mm. and, and what he needs to do to say to the media so that he doesn't burn bridges unnecessarily. Now, as you alluded to earlier, he did not play in any of the Broncos preseason games. Um, but of course, he did get in a lot of practice with the training camp. Uh, do you are there any concerns out there that perhaps he may have to still find his groove like this is his first time playing with the with the new team? Well, every player does, and we've seen that throughout the past weekend of sports. Last night, Tom Brady had a couple of uh, throws that were off target, but that's typical whether you practice or not. There's something that changes every year in the NFL, I found, when I played. And sometimes it was the speed of the linebackers or the movement of the defensive line, and those things literally take you by surprise because you have a split second to react to it before a grown man's you know, trying to break you in half with his shoulders on your solar plexus. So there will be some <laughs> moments of growth, uh, and all of us will have those moments today and this week, and Russell Wilson will be a part of that group for sure. Now, the Broncos haven't made the playoffs since the end of the 2015 season when they eventually won Super Bowl 50, and I know you know all about that. <laughs> there are expectations that could change this year, but it won't be easy. Each of the other three teams in the AFC West where Denver plays are also considered solid playoff possibilities. Give us an idea of what, besides continued health, could help make the difference between the Broncos achieving or not achieving those goals of success? Well, the health is everything. The healthiest team wins. And you may not be able to see what the impact of Russell Wilson is greater. And you might not see anything greater than his ability to limit distractions. You know, there are 1,600 players who make it to the NFL this year who are going to play on an NFL roster, but only 53 will become champions. Russell Wilson has been there. He understands what we all know. When, when things are tough, we look to leaders on how to respond. And whether I was playing with Peyton Manning or Ben Roethlisberger, other Hall of Fame quarterbacks, they never think about losing. They're only thinking about how we're going to win the game. Even in the huddle, you can tell with their words, their, their excitement. And this team, specifically the Broncos, has no concept of what it takes to win in the playoffs in the NFL. And Russell Wilson's input experience, that's going to be able to help them win close games, going to be help, able to help them get over the top. You know, one example, when we lined up for the Super Bowl, we got in the huddle, Peyton Manning comes in, we're all expecting him to say the play. He goes, hey, guys, breathe, okay, breathe. And you could hear 10 other players just gasp for <laughs> breath. You know, those kinds of things help when you have an established leader who has tremendous experience and ability to make sure you're focusing on the right things. And provided Russell stays healthy, he can help in that window of November and December when they have a gauntlet on the schedule, Baltimore, Tennessee, Kansas City twice. They are going to look to him, and he needs to be healthy to lead them back mm. to the mile-high city that, bring in, that brings back a championship. Now, Ryan, obviously you know football. And you know your Russell Wilson, I see as well. So what are your predictions? Here on Colorado Matters, we want to hear what are what is your prediction for this Broncos season? I think you're going to get 28 to 10 by the Broncos tonight. I mean, they've been listening to everybody say that, you know, they should have practiced in the preseason. Russell Wilson has had doubters his entire career. And look out for Jerry Judy. Just watch him. He is a fantastic player who's improved from last year, should bring a tremendous amount of ability. And then that defense, too, led by Ejiro Evero, the new defensive coordinator who had just won a Super Bowl last year with the Rams. It's going to be fun to see his defense 
shut down a Seahawks offense that doesn't really have a starting quarterback caliber of a player in the NFL and Geno Smith. All right. You heard it here. So, Ryan, where are you watching the game tonight? Well, I'm, I've got a corporate speaking event, so I'll be watching it from the hotel in Las <laughs> oh Vegas. My gosh. So, uh, but I'll be with Broncos country. Uh, the speech is done before the game, and I will enjoy the game. Uh, I, I, I like I like chicken wings, Chandra. You know, a nice little dry rub, some blue cheese. It's, it's going to be a fun time. What about some lemon pepper? <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, thank you so much, Ryan. Appreciate it, Chandra. Thank you. Ryan Harris is a former Broncos player and local and national radio and television broadcaster. He joined us to discuss the upcoming Denver Broncos season and tonight's debut of new quarterback Russell Wilson in Seattle against the Seahawks. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Looking out on Colorado Springs from Cheyenne Mountain, a curious shrine stands tall and rings out every 15 minutes. Made of granite cut from the mountain itself, it's a tower that looks like something from a fairy tale with a clear view of every sunrise. Spencer Penrose commissioned it in the 1930s as his final resting place. Then a plane crash in Alaska took the life of Will Rogers, the wildly popular folk philosopher who famously never met a man he didn't like. In tribute, the Penrose Mausoleum was christened the Will Rogers Shrine of the Sun. Ever since, Rogers' body has been in Oklahoma as his spirit infuses Colorado's singing tower. It tolls the time and rings out a song three times daily, a cheerful reminder of the wisdom of Will Rogers who once said, live your life so that whenever you lose it, you're ahead. A Colorado postcard from CPR with support from Dazzle Jazz in Denver. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. The Thwaites Glacier in Antarctica is hanging on by a thread. Well, at least that's what the authors of a new study say about how quickly it's melting. It's about the size of Florida and has been dubbed the Doomsday Glacier because it could raise global sea levels by two feet. Boulder scientist Ted Scambos has watched the impact of climate change on the glacier for three decades. This past spring, he got to see it from above. We spent two hours in a plane flying at 200 miles an hour. It's a prop plane. And we were flying over Thwaites Glacier from the moment we took off to the moment we landed to go from the very top of it, way up in the interior of Antarctica, where there's a base, uh, all the way out to the coast. And then as you get near the coast, these gigantic tears in beautiful patterns, but they span the entire view out the window of the plane to the horizon of a continent just literally tearing apart and breaking into these city block-sized chunks that are drifting out into the sea. Uh, this system has been like that for centuries. It's a large system, but it's accelerating and it's retreating. And the future modeling shows that it's retreating. It will likely evolve to a point where it's flowing several times as fast as it's flowing now and dumping many times more ice into the ocean than it's dumping now probably beginning within the next several decades. What we're seeing right now is the very beginning of a very rapid retreat. Scambo spoke with my co-host Ryan Warner in March. Do you see yourself now as a documenter of destruction or as, as a messenger still for behavior change? 
definitely a messenger for behavioral change. I guess I need to make it clear that the two feet of sea level rise that it holds within it, if it were to completely fall apart, won't really be a factor for many hundreds of years. The problem is that if Thwaites really gets going, the rate of sea level rise will climb quite a bit. And that's really a challenge for cities and for infrastructure everywhere. Now, that's the thing that we're worried about is that as this gets underway, it'll still be a big challenge, perhaps before the end of the century. Before the end of the century. So there's still time to reverse this? Is that fair to say? There's still time for us to slow the pace down for how fast this glacier comes apart. And that's really an important thing to say. The models show that if we stop putting our foot on the gas pedal in terms of climate change, that Thwaites also will slow down in terms of the pace of collapse. That's the problem is that we're really driving climate change hard and fast because of what we're doing to the atmosphere that through a series of changes in the Pacific Ocean and winds around Antarctica is causing warm water to reach the weights and trigger all of these changes that we're studying. Why does the sea level rise take longer than the falling apart? The initial breakup that we're concerned about in the next few years is on a piece of ice that's already afloat. So that hasn't, um, it's already contributed what sea level rise is going to contribute. And besides, it's really trivial at the scale of the ocean how mm. much sea level rise has happened because of that piece. But Thwaites, on the other hand, as you said, it's the size of Florida. And it's really a whole section of Antarctica, not like an ordinary glacier, more like a whole section of Antarctica that's flowing towards the sea. So people think of a glacier and they're familiar with beautiful mountain glaciers that look like a ribbon of ice flowing out of the mountains. That's not the case here. We have an entire coastline stretching 60 miles wide, 70 miles wide, that's moving towards the ocean. Right now, it's braced by this floating plate of ice and some high mountain areas that are below the surface. The ice is riding over them, but they're mm. acting as a kind of a braking force. As these other braces and restraining objects become less important because of the changes going on near the coast, the ice is thinning, the ice is retreating, the future for Thwaites looks fairly dramatic if we don't slow down how much warm water the circulation of the ocean is delivering to the front of Thwaites Glacier. That's the thing that's really causing the, the rapid retreat. The International Thwaites Glacier Collaboration you're working with, it's a $50 million effort by about 100 of the world's top scientists. One scientist said, what is happening at Thwaites is a bit like a windshield that cracks. First, it's a nick in the glass, and then little cracks kind of radiate out, and then it just shatters. You talked about the period of time that we'll see sea levels begin to rise if climate change isn't seriously addressed. Would that mean that those living in coastal cities like Los Angeles or Miami or New York towards the end of the years 2000, like... That will those will just become unsustainable places? I think the real challenge is not so much that they'll become completely unlivable, although other places that don't have the money to address the issues that could well be forced to, to close or to radically change. Most of the cities you mentioned would instead be spending a lot of money trying to rebuild their waterfronts or protect uh, infrastructure that's right up against the coast. 
Uh, in Miami, it's particularly difficult because the ground is quite porous. And so a simple wall at the sea coast won't do it for Miami. It's a tougher problem than that. But there's many areas around the world that would have to spend a lot of money or abandon a lot of infrastructure if sea level rise goes at the pace that we think it could if a large part of West Antarctica, that's where Thwaites sits, right in the center of West Antarctica, begins to destabilize because of warm ocean water at depth. The real challenge for us with this whole problem of global warming is that no particular day or month is a crisis. It's a very, very slow-moving catastrophe, and it challenges us to take the big steps that we need to take when they're based on a forecast that's a generation ahead of us. Give us a little history of Thwaites. Uh, Has anything like this happened in the past? It's an interesting question. On the history of Thwaites, this was essentially the last part of Antarctica to be mapped. It was discovered, so to speak, in 1940, finally, by aircraft flying over the area, uh, a part of Richard Byrd's expeditions to Antarctica. It's the last stretch of coastline where people were unsure exactly where the ocean stopped and the ice began. Since then, it's been mapped extensively, mostly by aircraft. And in fact, very few people, by Antarctic standards even, very few people have been on Thwaites Glacier itself. And at the very front where we're working, it's just a handful, less than 30 people have been there. Wow. Um, Longer term history, the geologic history, yes, this glacier was identified a long time ago that if a warm period in the past had occurred, chances are that part of Antarctica would disappear eventually and probably has disappeared once or twice in the last million years during the very warmest periods between ice ages. So in fact, the past gives us a roadmap for how West Antarctica comes apart, but the present is a different thing. The present is really moving quite rapidly in terms of climate change. Past climate change was due to things like changes in the tilt of the Earth's axis and changes in the shape of the Earth's orbit around the sun, things that progress very slowly over centuries. What's happening now is we've taken an element of the climate system, the Earth's atmosphere, and we are jamming the button that says get warmer about as hard as you can possibly do it compared to the way it's evolved in the past. It's remarkable to think that there are spots on Earth where just essentially a few dozen folks have been, you're among them. What was your mission on the latest trip? So we had visited two years ago and we'd set up these large stations that make a lot of measurements of the air and the ocean uh, and the ice. They're resting on top of the floating plate. We drilled a hole through the ice so that we could lower instruments into the ocean below. Uh, So the total length of the cable was about 2,500 feet. And there's ocean instruments at the end of it, and then a couple of sensors all along the way. Two years in the Antarctic had caused a bunch of the bits and pieces to fail, to stop working. The stations weren't sending back much data anymore. So we were there to repair those, get those ready, so they would collect data for this coming southern hemisphere winter and into the next summer, so that we get as many years as possible a record of what the ocean does and what the atmosphere does at the front of Thwaites Glacier. We went there to repair the stations, 
get them working again, and also recover data that was stored in other isolated stations that we'd scattered around on the ice shelf and bring that data back so that we could evaluate it uh, in more detail. And this is data that communities uh, bracing for what might come can make good use of, I gather. (laughs) You could put it that way, but really what we're after is a better story about how Thwaites is going to evolve over the next few decades and what we can do to improve models that forecast the sea level rise from Antarctica in general. That's, That's really the goal. We have a whole bunch of data, not just the part of the project that I'm working on closely, but overall, we want the projects to hand each other data and ideas and results and merge them into a real picture of how this part of the world is going to be impacted by warmer oceans and warmer atmosphere, but mostly it's the warm ocean that's affecting the system the most. Getting a roadmap for what's going to happen there is the best thing this project can do. And I think we're, like I said, at the point of being able to take a look at every aspect of the glacier and paint a clearer picture of what's there and what's happening. Ted, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you very much too. This was great. Boulder Science's Ted Scambo speaking with my co-host Ryan Warner in March. Scambos helps lead the International Thwaites Glacier Collaboration in Antarctica. A new study in the journal Nature Geoscience maps the glacier's accelerated melting due to climate change and what will likely become of it in the future. Thanks for joining us on Colorado Matters today, and thanks to the team behind the scenes. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Shonda Thomas-Whitfield with special thanks to Paolo Shelsita. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. KRCC.